You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Do I Need a Philosophy? by Aaron Smith. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth. This is a live weekly webinar series from the Ayn Rand Institute that explores life's big questions and the answers to those questions from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm Aaron Smith, and I'm your host this week. And our big question for the day is, do I need a philosophy? I'll give a 15 to 20 minute presentation, and then we'll open it up for questions and discussion. Uh, and then my colleague, Augustina Vergara-Sid, will moderate the Q&A uh, and likely join in the discussion as well. So let's get started. So do I need a philosophy? Well, I think many people would be inclined to say no, uh, or maybe wouldn't quite know what to say, in part because I think they don't have a clear idea of what philosophy is. Uh, they, and the kind of idea that they have of it is something like it, it's a subject that deals with esoteric questions uh, to which there are no answers. Uh, at least no answers you could say are true. Uh, and as a result, um, I think many think of philosophy as having little to do with their actual lives, uh, like chess or crossword puzzles, you know, something someone might be interested in, they might go in for, uh, but certainly not something that everyone would need to concern themselves with. Uh, and this was definitely not Ayn Rand's view of philosophy. Ayn Rand held that philosophy deals with vital and inescapable questions, the answers to which have an enormous impact on how we live our lives and how we think of ourselves. She held that philosophy is inescapable, that it's important, and that it serves a vital practical need. But to see why she thinks this, uh, we need to first know what philosophy is and why it's valuable to have one. So what is philosophy? Well, philosophy is the subject that addresses the timeless, universal, fundamental questions of human existence. These are questions that people have been asking and grappling with in a systematic way, at least since the time of ancient Greece. Historically, I think it's fair to say philosophy began with questions about nature and how to understand it. So for example, does the world operate according to principles that we can discover and understand? Are there gods that operate in and perhaps control some aspects of what happens in the world? Is the world intelligible? Or is it a realm of miracle and mystery? In other words, what they wanted to know is what is the basic or fundamental nature of the world we live in? Uh, after all, this is the world that we need to deal with, learn about, navigate, and so on. These questions led to related questions, questions about our own nature. What powers do we have to understand and to acquire knowledge about the world? I mean, we perceive the world all around us, but are our senses reliable? Does reason give us knowledge of the world or only of our subjective experience? Does fate or God or the atoms we're made of determine our actions? Or do we exercise some control over our lives? In other words, what kinds of beings are we? And what are we capable of? What can we expect of ourselves? In addition to questions about human nature and the world we live in, philosophers posed questions about how we should live our lives. What is good for man and what is evil? What is important in life and worth aiming at or striving for? What kind of a person should I work to become and why? What principles should guide and regulate our interactions with other people when we live in society? And then there's the ever-present question in the background and sometimes brought firmly into the form foreground is, how do you know any of this stuff? So how do you ensure that you get the facts right? What methods do you use to reach knowledge uh, rather than mere uh, belief or error? Is there reason to be confident in our power to think, to understand, to make sense of the world? Or is it just that we have to live in perpetual uncertainty and self-doubt? 
these questions, where am I? What am I? How should I live? How do I know? I think are inescapable. Because you can't help holding, forming, or at least relying on answers to these questions in some form, even if you've never heard of philosophy, because you can't operate without some kind of answers to them. If you really had no idea what kind of world you lived in or how to deal with it, if you had no views about how to reach knowledge or to distinguish fact from error, no ideas about what kinds of things are good or bad, right or wrong, worth pursuing or avoiding, you'd be completely lost. But the fact is you need a view of the world you live in, uh, of your end of your own nature and powers and of what to pursue and what to aim at if you're gonna function at all in life. Philosophy in this sense is not a luxury or a game, it's a practical necessity. And it matters to our lives which answers we accept because those answers serve as our fundamental operating premises. They give us our basic orientation toward life and they provide us with a framework for understanding and navigating life. The question is, are the answers that you accept true or false, carefully thought out, or hastily thrown together. As Ayn Rand put the point, as a human being, you have no choice about the fact that you need a philosophy. Your only choice is whether you define your philosophy by conscious, rational, by a conscious, rational, disciplined process of thought and scrupulously logical deliberation, or let your subconscious accumulate a junk heap of unwarranted conclusions, false generalizations, undefined contradictions, undigested slogans, unidentified wishes, doubts, and fears thrown together by chance, but integrated by your subconscious into a kind of mongrel philosophy and fused into a single solid weight, self-doubt, like a ball and chain in the place where your mind's wings should have grown. In other words, people who ignore philosophic questions don't escape from philosophy. They just wind up absorbing, by default, whatever philosophic ideas, true or false, consistent or contradictory, that are floating around them in the culture or are prevalent in their town or community. And those ideas then serve as their basic framework, a framework they more often than not haven't fully considered or validated. But in any case, it's the raft that they ride on, so to speak. As Ayn Rand put the point, the men who are not interested in philosophy need it most urgently. They are most helplessly in its power. But what a proper philosophy does is it integrates your answers to philosophic questions into a single consistent worldview the purpose of which is to provide perspective on the world that you live in and your place in it and give you guidance on what to pursue and how to live your life. In the end, it's about perspective and guidance. And part of the reason for integrating your answers to philosophic questions is to make sure that your ideas and values are not clashing or inadvertently working at cross purposes. And Rand gives the following example, just as a kind of schematic illustration. What will you accomplish if you advocate honesty in ethics while telling men that there is no such thing as truth, fact, or reality? What will you do if you advocate political freedom on the grounds that you feel it's good and find yourself confronting an ambitious thug who declares that he feels quite differently? <clears throat> so if I can just summarize some of the main points um, and again, this is just a, 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 a brief introduction to a large subject, but let me just summarize the main points. Rand's view is that philosophy is inescapable because we can't help holding answers to philosophic questions. Philosophy is important because it matters to our lives and to our outlook on life, which answers we accept. And philosophy serves as a vital practical need because we can't operate without some kind of answers to these questions and to successfully navigate life. What we need are answers to these questions that are actually true 
And the only way to figure out which ones are true is to engage in philosophy. Uh, as I said, this is a brief introduction to a big subject, but if you're interested in exploring Rand's ideas on philosophy and its relevance to our lives, I'd suggest starting with Rand's essays, Philosophy Who Needs It and Philosophical Detection. They're the first two uh, essays in her book, Philosophy Who Needs It. There's a screen there. There we go. Philosophy Who Needs It. They're the first two essays in this book. Um, and you, I mean, most of Ayn Rand's work is th this theme about the philosophy and its nature and its importance and the sense in which it's in the background or guiding or shaping people's lives and actions and the culture uh, runs through essentially all of Ayn Rand's work. Uh, all of her nonfiction essays uh, are in some sense that theme is in the background uh, and her view of philosophy as, as driving a culture, as, 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 as driving individuals. Uh, is, is, a, is a recurrent theme throughout her works um, because she's, I think, only interested in philosophy to the extent that it really impacts and drives human life. Uh, and so, but I would start with those essays, Philosophy Who Needs It and Philosophical Detection. You can also, uh, if you go on to Ayn Rand campus on, on the Ayn Rand Institute's website, uh, you can also listen to an audio version of uh, basically Ayn Rand giving a talk because the talk philosophy who needs it was originally a lecture uh and you can hear her give give the lecture herself and uh that's really impactful so i would start with those two uh and move forward from there uh so that brings me to the end of my brief presentation here and in a minute augustina will be joining me to moderate the q a um let me say just a word about how the q a is going to work uh if you're watching this live on zoom you can take a look at the Zoom controls at the bottom of the screen uh, and you'll find a Q&A button. You can click there uh, and then you can post a question and then we'll add that to the queue. Um, you can also, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can also post questions in the Facebook feed uh, if you're watching there and we'll take a look at those. Uh, for next week's webinar, uh, my colleague Keith Lockich uh, we'll be talking about why calls to abolish billionaires are a moral travesty. I'm certainly looking forward to that one, uh, and I hope you can attend live. If not, maybe you can catch it on YouTube later on. Uh, as always, let us know if you have any big questions that you'd like us to take up in future episodes. We're interested in hearing what kinds of questions, life questions that you have. Uh, you can send them to webinars at aynrand.org. Uh, we collect those and use those to think about what we might do next. Um, and before we turn to the Q&A, uh, I'm going to put up a survey question that I'd like all of you to answer. Uh, one of the goals of the webinar series is to, in, is to reach newer audiences and to introduce some of Ayn Rand's ideas to people who aren't really familiar with them. So we're curious as to who we're reaching. So uh, even if you're a regular attendee of this series, go ahead and fill it out. It's just uh, one question. So let me pop up the poll here. There we go. So I just shared the poll. So you can take a look at there and uh, fill it out. It's basically about your level of familiarity with Ayn Rand and her work. Just minimize that. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and stop sharing my screen here and then Augustina is going to join us. So let me stop sharing. There we go. Okay. Hey, Augustina. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for that presentation. It was very clarifying. Uh, thanks. So let's uh, take a look here. Let me let me pop. Let me get my real estate set up here. Okay. So I see mm -hmm. we got chat. Oh yeah. Thanks for posting that. So if you see in the Zoom webinar chat, uh, Augustina posted some links to um, uh, philosophy. Who needs it? The one where Ayn Rand actually delivers the talk. I think that's really really a good one. Um, okay, so what do we got here, Augustina? Um, all right, so I have, I have a question. Uh, you know, in her essay that the, I just posted a link to Philosophy Who Needs it, or her talk, um, Rand says that she's not 
selling her own philosophy when she's addressing the graduates from uh, West Point. Uh, but she's kind of selling philosophy in general, right? Uh, but she says that if you take philosophy, if, if you take the importance of philosophy seriously, like, like she's, she's trying to, to do, uh, objectivism, is, objectivism is ultimately the philosophy that you will come to, to adopt. So my, my question is, how is it possible then that so many people have a different philosophy, even those who actually do take philosophy seriously? Uh, yeah, good question. I, you know, when, when she says that in the speech that I, I think that it's my philosophy that you'll come to accept, I think, um, well, you'd have to ask her, but uh, what I would say to that is I think she, she puts it, if you're starting with sort of a common sense kind of view that, you know, the world that you see around you exists, it's fully real, uh, that you have the ability to reach knowledge uh, and to understand it uh, by using your reason and, you know, logic, uh, and that you have the ability to, uh, you know, you have free will. I mean, take the things that you would take from a common sense perspective. And if what you did was to work out, is to think about those things, to try to validate them, to um, pursue f philosophy from that perspective, uh, she thinks that ultimately the working out of that is something like objectivism. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deeper validation of a more common sense view, but the philosophy is not at all common sense. Like when you think about it that way, how do people come to different philosophic views? Um, this is worth stressing. Philosophy is very difficult. I think it's very difficult to think at that kind of abstract level. Um, and, you know, so my background is in philosophy. So I, you know, I've read a lot of philosophy from Plato and Aristotle, Stoics, Epicureans, Kant, Descartes, you know, and you watch them grappling with these ideas. And if you do it along with them, instead of saying, well, I, I know what's true and I'll go back and look at these philosophers and figure out what they did wrong. But more from looking at it is like, watch how they think through the issues. And you see that the, the issues are thorny. The questions are even hard. Even the questions are hard to isolate. Like, what are, what, are, what are you actually grappling with? What's the question at, at issue? And it's not always that clear. So I think that they're just difficult to, to come up with answers to this. And this is why you see that over a whole long historical period, you see people grappling with these. I mean, smart people. That makes sense. That's a good segue to uh, a question from Emily in the Q&A module. She asked, what is the difference between a professional philosopher and a normal individual who is interested in it for his own work and purposes? To what extent do we have to be like a professional philosopher? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I was thinking about that uh, last night. As I, I assumed I would get some question like that, and it's a good one. Um, so when you talk about so I, I've made the point and Rand makes the point that everybody needs philosophy. And I think you need a philosophy. In other words, you need an integrated set of answers to these questions and not just a grab bag. Um, but how much philosophy? And I don't think the question is how much per se. Uh, so it's not you, you, everybody needs to go get a PhD in philosophy and become a professor or something. Uh, that's for people who are professionals in the field where they really do need to know something about the history of ideas and the development of philosophic systems why people had the ideas that they did, what's the logic of the development of certain kinds of philosophies, and to really dig deep into the answers. Um, but when it comes to uh, what I call normal people, <laughs> you know, non-philosophers, um, I think you need, um, it's more of an issue of having a view about fundamental issues uh, that in effect the, you need to know that the world is intelligible, I think. So I, I'll, I'll put forward a few things. Uh, that the world is intelligible, uh, that it operates by causal laws, um, that you have free will. In other words, you, you do shape your own, your own self uh, by, by the extent to which you put forth the effort to think and to process information. Um, and that you have to have some conception of the good, which you can uh, validate or anchor or tie to actual facts about human nature and what, what we need and what makes our lives go well. Uh, so I think what you need is you need answers to some of the fundamental questions that give you your basic framework. 
do you have to go into every one of the philosophy's questions? Well, no, um, but you have to know what you know. Um, and I think one way to get started with that is to figure out, um, is to be introspective and ask yourself some questions about like, what is your current framework? I mean, what, what are you, so if you take some of philosophy's questions, well, what are your answers to those questions? And then start probing those and thinking about, well, what grounds do I have to think that those are true? Um, and that will start get, getting you into thinking about, well, what are the questions and sub questions I need to ask to kind of, to at least know that um, the views I'm riding on uh, are, are well-founded. Um, but that doesn't mean you need to go into it in such detail that a professional would be who's going to teach and write and so on. So that's what I would say to that. Yes, absolutely. That that makes sense. And um, we have another question from Brad, and it relates to a comment by Audrey as well. The question is, how can you navigate relationships with people in your life who have different philosophies, especially if they disagree with egoism? I, I take that to mean with objectivism. Well, um, in some cases, it's very hard to connect with people uh, and to have a common ground if their philosophy is really, really different, um, radically different in such a way that you don't seem to really share any fundamental values um, or you're not even on the same page when it comes to whether you should use reason or not. I think that can be hard to, to connect and to communicate in those kind of cases. Um, but there are all sorts of differences that people can have on philosophic issues that um, as long as they're open to reason and open and open to reason doesn't mean ready to accept your view, but open to reason, meaning they, they you take them as to be thoughtful people that they actually think about these things and that they try to practice what they preach. In other words, if they think that something is true, they try to implement it in their lives. In other words, they take if they take ideas, ideas seriously. And that they're open to listening to different viewpoints and actually processing them and try to think about them. Um, those can be some of the most interesting discussions you can have if they, you know, with somebody with a different kind of view, if they're really like that. Um, if it comes to, and it also depends, you, you made the, uh, so Brad made the point about relationships. It depends on what your relationship is. If it's just uh, a coworker that you bump into from time to time, well, you don't have to engage you know, with that kind of a person on philosophic issues, if it's your spouse or people you're very close to, uh, yeah, that can be harder if you really clash on those issues. But um, I think the thing that one ought to demand, well, demand might not be the right word, but to expect of people uh, is, is intellectual honesty um, and a desire to come to know, come to reach answers. Uh, not just to form beliefs or to hold beliefs, but to find out what's true. And if somebody's on that kind of quest and you get the impression that they are, uh, I think those can be interesting conversations uh, and good ones. Um, like I don't, I mean, I'm an objectivist. I mean, I have already have a radical philosophy. So I'm already, um, my views are often at odds with uh, many people, but I don't find it difficult for the most part uh, to deal with people or talk to people who are, you know, are liberals or conservatives or libertarians and so on. I don't find it difficult to talk to them. If you're talking about making headway in terms of changing minds and stuff, uh, that can be harder. But, okay, maybe that was too long-winded of an answer, but that's, that's what I've got for you, Brad. And it's not that you have to go around trying to, you know, change everyone's mind or trying to push your philosophy everywhere, right? Oh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, part of it is, I mean, it depends on your interests and what you're actually out trying to do. Uh, you bump into somebody at a restaurant, you don't harangue them about the, the, the virtues of egoism and, and so on. Um, in the same way, you wouldn't want to be harangued in the same way as somebody out proselytizing their own views. Um, but I think also that, I mean, so we have, you have a radical perspective, and it's, I think when you engage with people, I think the best thing to do, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think the best thing to do is simply model what clear thinking looks like and an openness to think about ideas uh, and to have an active mind where you're, you're ready to listen to what other people have to say. I mean, 
they have something <laughs> worthwhile to say, but uh, what they have to say and to process it and, um, you know, be willing to, you know, explain yourself if, if that's, uh, if the situation calls for it. I mean, I, I teach and I write, so I'm constantly engaged in the activity of trying to put ideas out there and, and hopefully to be uh, convincing, at least in the context in which I'm operating. Yes, I agree with that. And uh, it's sort of kind of embodying the philosophy and living the philosophy that, that you come to adopt. Um, and I, I have like kind of like an anecdote about that. I was um, in law school and uh, I was in my human rights law class and the whole semester went by and, you know, I was getting, we were getting in debates and things like that and getting along with the professor a lot. And the last day of class, we went to a restaurant to eat. And my professor just started asking me, you know, uh, okay, what do you read? You know, what's your, who's your favorite author? Something like that. I said, I am Rand, I'm an objectivist. And she was shocked. And because she did not get that sense, because I, I hadn't like been preaching, you know, actively preaching my philosophy or saying, I am an objectivist, just, you know, uh, being a rational person, having rational discussion, being active-minded, seeking answers in the class. And she was shocked, but uh, I think that's an example of, uh, you don't have to go out there like preaching your philosophy. You just have to, I think, live your philosophy. Unless of course you, you teach or write and that's, what, that's the right uh, setting in which you should do that, I think. Yeah, I mean, people can get triggered and you don't necessarily, I, when I was an undergrad, um, I had an advisor, uh, who I never really went to. I went to another philosopher because this guy was not super helpful. But um, when he asked me kind of what I was interested in, I told him uh, Ayn Rand. Um, I mean, I didn't know anyone who read Ayn Rand before. And I, you just asked me, I said, Ayn Rand. Uh, and he says, Ayn Rand is a very bad philosopher. And, and he harangued me for a while. Uh, but, you know, when people get triggered like that, uh, there's no need necessarily to engage uh, or to, you know, but part of, so bringing this back to the issue of the importance of philosophy, I think one of the things that uh, having a philosophy that you've spent some time thinking through, I think gives you the kind of, uh, can give you the kind of self-confidence, uh, intellectual self-confidence that, you know, you don't automatically feel threatened just because somebody challenges your ideas. You won't always have the answers to every question. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions and sub-questions to ask and follow and leads to follow up on and so on. So it's not like you've necessarily thought everything through. Um, but, uh, but it helps you to be, I think, more intellectually self-confident. If you know, so if you know what ideas you hold and why you hold them, like what are your reasons for them? Then you can talk about those and say, yeah, well, from my perspective, this is the way I look at it. This is why I think that this is true. Um, and I think people, you get less defensive, I think, when the more confident you are in your ideas. And I think that feeds into this idea of you're triggered and you get sucked into an argument and or feeling like you constantly have to go out there and change minds or something. Um, yeah. um, I think uh, related to that, when you are actually having an intellectual discussion with, with someone, um, I think Paul, um, Paul's question in the Q&A is uh, relevant. He cites the example of Alex Epstein, uh, who recommends to correct people's erroneous views on energy and fossil fuels uh, by asking them the questions why they believe what they believe, and then uh, help help them help them like uh, introspect in their own reasoning. Uh, and he Paul asks if does this work for erroneous philosophical ideas as well? Asking why and helping them introspect. Yeah, well, what it does, I mean, it can, but what it does is it brings the other person into a, a cognitive context. It brings them into the into a context in which they're, what they're doing is not um, offering a different uh, conclusion than yours. And then your conclusions clash. Um, it's not just about conclusions butting heads and you have this view and I have this view and you know, you're bad and whatever, but it's more about, yeah, but what are the reasons that you have to think that these things are true? And then that it puts them in a different position where what, I mean, and, and with ourselves too, but it puts them in, a, in the position of having to offer reasons. Um, the only way, well, the way to challenge a, a conclusion is to look at the reasons that led to it. 
So you can't just take conclusions as they're just floating around and kind of conflicting with other conclusions. You have to look at the reasons for those. Uh, and often what you find is, um, well, you mean you might find that there are some problems with the uh, with the arguments that have been put forward in favor of the conclusion, or you might find that the evidence is lacking. But then what? But then what you're now talking about is you're talking about evidence and arguments, uh, and that brings it to a more intellectual level where you you're trying to look at what are the grounds on which they think it's true, and if the grounds aren't strong enough for it, maybe you or the other person should have uh, be a little less confident that 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 your conclusion is correct. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's really the way to to so I, so so the answer is yeah I think that's helpful in because it's the only way to really move forward uh, or to even have any discussion about it. Otherwise, it's uh, you're in favor of abortion and I'm not, and you know it's the you're bad and I'm good or whatever. And it's it's looking at the arguments for that. I think it's it brings it to a position where you can actually. Uh, sort out the grounds for the views instead of just clashing back and forth with the views. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, and we have a question here from uh, anonymous attendee. And this is a question that I usually get pretty often in different forms. Uh, the question is, what do you say to people that say that you can't know philosophical truths because 10 years from now, you might have a different opinion? especially for younger people. That you can't know philosophical truths because 10 years down the road or whatever, you might form a different view? Yes. Um, I don't think that's so much of an issue of, so there's a question of whether um, answers to philosophical questions are knowable. That's one kind of question. Uh, and another question is, how can you be confident that what you have is knowledge at any given point? Um, because if you look back, uh, like at your own life, there are probably things that you held when you were 18 that when you're 40, you don't hold anymore. Um, well, when the when you when you think about any particular view that you have, uh, and you're trying to assess, is this knowledge? Um, well knowledge is always formed within a context. In other words, so uh, you learn certain things, you gather certain kinds of facts, you're convinced by certain kinds of arguments. And when you look at something and you say, is this knowledge? The answer is, um, it, are the reasons I have for this conclusive? <clears throat> or there are there are there's good evidence for it, but there's also some reasons to think it might not be true. I mean, then you might say, well, it's probable or it's likely to be true. But when do you know it's knowledge? And that can be a complex issue to know when it's knowledge and depending on what kind of truths we're talking about. Are we talking about some kind of uh, complex theory in physics or you're talking about, you know, I'm sitting in this chair, for example, uh, in which case the one is one is complicated and one is not. Um, when it comes to philosophic truths, um, these are really truths about fundamental issues uh, like take the issue of, um, uh, of free will or whether reason is your means of knowledge and so on. Um, different information is required. Sometimes it's introspection. Sometimes it's like in those cases, I think some of it's introspection, some of it's looking outward. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a, I mean, it's a complicated matter. It depends on what kinds of issues uh, we're talking about. Um, if it's, I'm worried, but I don't think that one should hold out um, the idea that, well, this is what I've got now, but who knows in 10 years, maybe I'll have the opposite view. And so, and then just hold yourself in perpetual doubt and uncertainty about any kinds of issues. I don't think that's the right approach because that approach would really be unfounded in the sense where if you think some philosophic truth is a truth, in other words, it's getting the facts right. And in your own context of knowledge, this is, you have good reasons to think that this is true. Um, I wouldn't bring in an arbitrary claim then just say, who knows, maybe I'll have some other facts which I don't have now. Um, and I'll use those arbitrarily imagined facts to then play as evidence or counter evidence to a current view I have now. Um, you're always holding knowledge in a context. Uh, and it should be amenable to changes in the context and it should be amenable to um, 
or changeable with uh, new information, new arguments, and so on. Uh, yeah, and, but there are some things that aren't like that, some things that you know that aren't on the basis of uh, gathering evidence and formulating arguments, something that like uh, just as Ayn Rand says, existence exists. I mean, the, the world is here, it's what you perceive, it's, this is your basic contact with reality. So you don't form that on the basis of evidence. It's just that is, that's where you, that is your evidence. In effect, it's, it's self-evident. So some things are self-evident as opposed to being uh, reached through argument. Uh, and you can't, you shouldn't throw out the self-evident. Otherwise, you have no grounds for reaching any kind of knowledge. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, the form in which I've gotten this question in the past, uh, it, it's been that, uh, especially younger people, uh, when they understand that it's important to have a hierarchy of values and to make the decisions in life according to that hierarchy, their question is often, okay, but what, what if when I'm 40, I... I regret what I did or the choices that I made because at that moment I had, I, I thought those things were important. Those values were important, but then it turns out that they're not. Uh, that's the type of uh, question that I often get. And, yeah, and you I could think, it, you go ahead. No, I think that what you mentioned about the context of knowledge that you have at any, any specific time, a uh, point in time, I think it's very relevant to evaluating, um, what your values are. I mean, you can't know what's going to happen in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Yeah. And people do undergo changes of values like that as, as they grow older and, and certainly changes of priorities in terms of thinking about what's really worth uh, spending time on, what's really worth prioritizing. Um, the, the thing I just wanted to caution about is to not in, inject an element of perpetual self-doubt because you think you might change. Well, if you might change it, and maybe you ought to change. So uh, it's but if you if you change and it's on the basis of new thinking that you've done, uh, and you've revised some of your views about what's valuable or what's important or how to prioritize things. I mean that's a that's a movement forward, um, uh, but it's as a result of new information. For example, um, I mean so long as you you feel like you're you really are moving forward and having a better view at a more wise uh, perspective than than you had before. Um, Looks like we got a question about nihilism. Yes, I was gonna bring that up next. Um, anonymous, an anonymous attendee asks, is nihilism basically just a total rejection of the idea that having any philosophy is necessary? Um, I don't think that nihilism um, I wouldn't think of nihilism as a philosophy, um, but it is a perspective on philosophic issues um, that assumes certain kinds of answers to philosophic questions. Uh, and it depends what you mean by nihilism. If nihilism is the view that um, uh, you know, that the, the life has no meaning, that it has no purpose, that values are a sham. Um, <clears throat> it's essentially uh, a negation of uh, the values uh, and, um, yeah, and essentially a negation of values um, to say that either none of this is really valuable or the whole process of thinking about values and forming them and living by them is a sham in effect. Um, is it a total rejection of the idea that philosophy is necessary? Well, you can, you can nihilistically reject philosophy uh, as such, but then what one is holding in effect is a philosophic position uh, because it's a philosophic position to say, you know, uh, there are no values or values are a sham or life has no point. I mean, those are answers to philosophic questions. I mean, the question is, does life have meaning? What gives life meaning to life? What's important in life? And the, the nihilist has answers for those. Uh, and it's nothing has meaning. The values, you know, uh, people go for are not really values. Uh, there's nothing to substitute it with. 
I mean, I haven't really studied nihilism, uh, but in effect, you're taking a position on philosophic questions. So you can't really avoid philosophy by, by, uh, by adopting some kind of nihilism. Uh, on the other hand, it's a, it's a rejection of the positive answers that philosophy has offered uh, in some sense. Um, and then there's the nihilism uh, can be used also in a term I mean that, that it's someone who's simply out to destroy and to smash um, whatever values or fundamentals or ideas are out there. Uh, and I think that's an outlook on life um, that has philosophical roots, um, but that it isn't a philosophy. That, that wouldn't be a philosophy per se. <clears throat> Got it. I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we have a question from Christopher. Okay. Do you think some philosophy should be taught at the high school or college level as part of the education curriculum? Well, high school, that's tricky. Um, I think it depends uh, largely, okay, well, let me just step back from that question for one second, pan out a little bit. Um, what schools, what schools decide on for their curriculum is, is you know, it's not, not up to me, of course. Um, but do I think it's useful? Um, I would say I wouldn't teach philosophy per se to high school. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's just that you've got to get them at the right age. I mean, if they're seniors or like they're 18, 17, I think they're, they start to become equipped to think a bit more about these ideas and you'd have to do that carefully and make sure that the, the way in which you're introducing philosophy to the students is at a level that they can process or understand. Um, I think a good way to introduce philosophic ideas in a way that, in which they can see that, no, these things matter, how you answer these kind of questions, and I should think about, like, do I hold some of these ideas, is through teaching literature. Um, uh, a good literature uh, teacher can bring out uh, the sort of life's big questions that kind of, I mean, it, great literature to, will typically deal with these kind of timeless fundamental issues of, um, you know, of... Uh, uh, of love, of values, and so on that, that really matter uh, to your lives. And they can bring out that these are philosophic issues. They're, they're issues that we have to grapple with when we think about, like, how would I conduct my own life? Do I want to be like that character? Uh, how, does, how does that character live their life? Do I want to live my life that way? Are there elements of that in me? Uh, do I want to aspire or uh, want to emulate that kind of a character? So I think that's a way in which that can be done effectively. Um, at university level, sure. I mean, I think part of part of being educated um, is that you have a more abstract view about yourself and about the world and about how people reach conclusions and knowledge about things, and to not be um, uh, too focused on just concretes, you know, concrete particular, this event happened and that event and so-and-so thought this and so-and-so thought that, but to, to step back and like, why did they think this? Why do these things even matter? Why are they important? Are they important? Does this figure in my life? And a lot of it's just having a more abstract perspective and that's what philosophy pushes you to do. Uh, so I think part of being educated is to have some awareness of what those ideas are. Whether they should be mandatory to in school, I, that's not really up to me, but um, uh, I think it's definitely part uh, of a person's education. Uh, yeah, particularly if they're going on to do um, kind of college level work and they're, you know, they're studying some history, they're studying some science. I mean, what philosophy does is help to integrate, um, uh, integrate it in a more abstract level, what you think in history and what you think in physics and what you think in biology and what you think in social sciences and, and so on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's useful in that regard. But high school is, you'd have to do it at the right level. I never had it in high school. I certainly didn't. I agree. And um, that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up. Because you mentioned literature, uh, especially in the context of high school students. Um, I think what I find one of the many valuable things about um, Ayn Rand is that her novels are essentially philosophy 
put in action. And you can see how Rand's, the, through her heroes, how her own philosophy kind of develops and how the, these characters go through stages in their lives and at different times in their lives and take different actions informed by, by, some, by philosophy. And then other characters adopt different philosophies and you get to see how they progress or not progress throughout her novels. And I think that is a very important aspect of objectivism. I mean, that's one thing that I try to recommend to people is to never lose sight of, uh, of the novels when you are studying objectivism. Uh, yeah. Even if you're kind of at an expert level or, or close that you've been studying objectivism for, year, I th for years, I think that always keep coming back to the novels, keeping the novels in mind. I think that's an important, very important thing. Yeah, and because, I, I mean, I think in um, in Ayn Rand's novels, uh, I mean, I think this is where you get some of the richest presentation, uh, kind of like um, presentation is not quite the word for it, but the richest um, portrayal of her views, like take the Fountainhead, for example. Um, I think this is where you get her richest portrayal of what it means to be independent or what it means to have integrity. And the, her nonfiction, you know, philosophical essays are super important uh, for kind of coming to understand her views about this. But I think the way in which to get, uh, get in a more, I don't know, a visceral or concrete way uh, about the way philosophy shapes a life is definitely to read the novels. And so, uh, you know, for this, I had recommended um, a couple essays from Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, but if you, if you have an interest in, both in Ayn Rand and how, and just, or just not necessarily Ayn Rand, but in how uh, philosophy plays a role in life. I would say read The Fountainhead. Start with The Fountainhead. No, that's what I always tell people to start with, but start with The Fountainhead because you watch several different people as they, as they live their life and they have a perspective on, on life and it shapes the way they interact with each other, the way they, they um, pursue their careers or their goals or their relationships. Uh, and it's... Um, really useful from that perspective. And one of the things Rand said that I thought was interesting is she said, um, I'm going to get this sort of wrong because I don't have this on the top of my, I don't have it up here. But she said something like, I think there would be far fewer, I'm going to screw this up, far fewer errors in philosophy if philosophers had to put their philosophy in fictional form. Uh, in other words, to really concretize, dramatize what it really looks like to live by a Kantian philosophy or by Descartes' philosophy or by Aristotle's philosophy or by Plato's philosophy. What it, what it really means, a, a life lived by those kinds of values with that sort of orientation where you, you know, you go to work and you have relationships and you fall in love and like, what, what, like how do you, how would somebody with that whole worldview live in concrete terms uh, and what it really looks like to take those ideas seriously. And I think she, uh, well, she certainly did that. Um, and I think there are some other works where you can find philosophic issues dramatized in fictional form. Um, I just bought a book and I haven't read it yet, um, but you know, B.F. Skinner is a psychologist uh, and he wrote this book, uh, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, where he argues for a sort of a behaviorist perspective, a determinist perspective on, on human beings and for some kind of behavioral uh, technology where you try to um, structure people or in, to, be, to be good. And, and he wrote a novel called Walden II uh, and in a way kind of dramatizing some of this in like a fictional form. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my, it's on my reading list. Because part of what is interesting to me about philosophy is not just, you know, you connect a bunch of propositions or something, but it's, the, it's that you watch it lived out. Because, um, yeah, philosophy is just an abstract perspective uh, on, on life. And so it's not some separated, isolated, uh, ivory tower sort of discipline that's sort of cut off in a way from life. I mean, it can be if that's the way you hold philosophic ideas, but I think it's the wrong way of holding them. Um, but I think the right way to hold philosophic ideas is their abstractions over um, human life, human actions, human goals, um, the things that we observe and so on. So that's, that's what philosophy is supposed to actually be integrating. And if it's not doing that, what you're holding isn't, isn't knowledge. But. 
that's a big topic. Uh, kind of related to that, um, Sam is asking the Q&A module, to what test could a person put their philosophy to help figure out its validity? Okay. Um, so basically the way I would frame it is, how do you know that your philosophy is true? Um, well, what I would say is I, I wouldn't go like, to, I wouldn't say your whole philosophy, I wouldn't take your whole philosophy uh, as something that you could put under review, uh, like as, as a total. Um, what I would do is look at what are the fundamental elements of your philosophy, what are its key components, uh, and then ask, um, how do these relate to the facts of reality that I observe? Does it fit? Does it fit some facts, but not other facts? Um, uh, do you have real grounding for that? So you take something like, uh, you take an element from, um, from objectivism. So Ayn Rand holds that uh, reason is man's uh, means of survival. Okay, that's a major, that's a major principle in, in Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Um, well, is that true? How do you know that's true? Well, you have to ask, well, what is reason and so on? But it's like the way I, the way I hold this, you know, is, is a way in which I connect it with observed facts. And that is, if you just look all around you, I mean, so I'm here at the Ayn Rand Institute in the office and we've got computer monitors and I've got a book here and I got my cell phone on the ready. I got my other laptop over here. We got some stuff, some, some soundproofing. We got electric lights. Uh, you think just, just literally everything around you is the product of human thought. Like none of this stuff grows on trees. We got a microphone here. None of this stuff grows on trees. Uh, none of it just drops from the sky. Uh, all of these things had to be thought out, created, and there's an enormous amount of knowledge that has to go into this. There's so much plastic. I mean, you just look at all the plastic of the, the keyboard and the mouse and just all over the place. Somebody has to figure out, well, where, you know, what, how, what is plastic? How do, how do you use it to shape it? And their factories have to be built and machinery to mold it and to, to create bottle caps and just anything. So it's you just literally look around you, just take a walk. And I mean, we're out here in Southern California, so even the trees are uh, <laughs> artificial. But, um, but you, you look at that and you think, yeah, no, these are products of human thought, of human reason. Uh, and that they're real achievements and they require a lot of knowledge and a lot of grasp of the properties that things have, of the causal relationships that things have with each other. And, and for me, that helps to think, this is how I connect some sort of philosophic principle, like reason is man's means of survival. This is how um, I connect something like that with just observed facts that you see all around you. And if you can hold your philosophy like that, or um, I think that's how you can really have a tight connection between uh, the principles that your philosophy involves and the facts that would know, support them. Um, so how do you know that they're true? See if you can have that kind of a way of holding them. The principles, I suppose, it's, it's maintaining that connection to the facts that you can observe. And sometimes you might find there are elements of your viewpoint that um, are, you don't have a very good foundation for. And in that case, you just like, have to think about those things and think about maybe you should have a different viewpoint or uh, or you should try to gather more facts. I mean, that makes it sound like it's a simple affair, and I don't mean that to sound that it's simple, but it's, uh, I think, in process. Uh, but then there are also some different things that, some things are self-evident, and they're not gathered by, like I said, they're not gathered by collecting a lot of evidence and looking at history and so on, but they're just, you know, I, and I think some things are like that, uh, such as the control you have over your own thinking, the choice to think or not to think. It's something we uh, observe introspectively, directly. And same thing with the, your perceptual awareness of the world around you. It just, there it is. You know, it's not, it's not a conclusion you reach on the basis of some kind of argument. It's just, it's that which is directly, that which you're directly aware of. And that's the start. So that's not the kind of thing you'd have to come out with a big argument for. What you do need arguments for, for example, are when philosophers, and many have and do, um, present arguments to, to try to show, well, you know, your, your senses don't really put you in contact with the, with reality and so on. And you have to, you know, you have to think about those things and, and see like, 
Uh, are they right? What do I have to say about it? Got it, that makes sense. And we have a question from Brad and he's asking, what is the main deterrent for people adopting, adopting objectivism in your opinion? Wow, I don't know if there's one main deterrent. Um, one issue is um, a lot of people don't know about Ayn Rand. So if we just think about uh, the United States, she's much, much more well known here than in other parts of the world. So some people simply are not familiar with it. Um, second is that she's offering a philosophy that challenges most of the fundamentals, philosophic fundamentals, certainly at the moral level um, that we've been taught to hold. So there's a lot of uh, one's own views uh, that are, you know, widespread in the culture or conventional. Um, there's a lot of inertia in, in that regard to, to accept, well, you know, she has this kind of radical perspective, but everybody knows that, you know, self-interest is, is bad and self-interest is in fact why we need morality, you know, so that it doesn't take over and you should at least in some sense live for others. Um, and there's a lot of inertia there. Um, Uh, we've seen the lighting problems here. Um, I think because so, if you look at it from a you look at it from a, a moral perspective, I think it takes a lot of a couple things. It takes a lot of intellectual independence um, and seriousness. I think to to take the issues seriously enough to to want to grapple with them uh, and to want to think them through. And, and I think not everyone has that kind of intellectual independence or self-confidence that they would um, want to adopt uh, a philosophy that says you should be independent. You should, if you're forming, if you hold ideas, they should be ones that you formed, you've reached on independent grounds. And I don't mean you've invented them or something, but you, you have your own reasons your own reasons for holding them for why you hold them to be intellectually independent and also to be independent in the sense that, you know, you, um, you take your life and career seriously that you, this is, you have to, you know, create the material values that are required to support your life. And that there's, there's a real deep independence, uh, there that's required. And some people don't want to, or don't feel confident, uh, you know, to sort of adopt that, um, but that's the, I, I don't mean that as a dig to people who don't uh, agree with Ayn Rand, because it, like, like I said, it's a radical philosophy. All ph philosophic issues are hard. I mean, and many, and so you, what you meet often is disagreement. It's not just that, oh, they're scared of being independent or something. There's real disagreement. Um, and I think you have to get into objectivism uh, or Rand's thought enough to get to the point where you're moving past some caricatures and so on, but you're trying to really get into what does a life look like, like this. And this goes back to the, I think the importance of the novels. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know that there's one barrier, but those are, those are some. Yes, I agree. And, and it, it also comes back um, to the issue of intellectual honesty that you were mentioning earlier, I think. Uh, a lot of the people that um, go out and criticize Rand are not being intellectually honest and like trying to really understand what she's saying and taking taking her seriously like they would any other philosopher. Yeah, you can definitely have that approach. I mean, you see this kind of thing in uh, often in you know kind of popular media things in. Uh, the way in which they present Rand. I think it, it's often, not always, of course, it's often the case that the overall impression is, you know, nothing to see here, uh, no reason to take this person uh, seriously. I mean, really, you want somebody advocating uh, selfishness? Really? Is that, is that what we need? Um, so let's, um, I think we're just about out of time uh, on this one. So uh, I just want to remind everyone uh, that next week the webinar is going to be uh, delivered by my colleague Keith Lockich, 
uh, and it's going to be why, on why calls to abolish billionaires are a moral travesty. So I uh, hope you can catch that, um, catch that live or maybe catch it later on YouTube. Um, and as always, um, it's funny because the question we have here is, do I need a philosophy? It's kind of like, do I need answers to life's big questions? But uh, that's the whole purpose of the series here is to talk about those kind of questions. Uh, so if you have some of your own um, and you want to send those in to us for consideration for maybe a possible webinar topic, just send them uh, to uh, webinars at einran.org and we'll be able to take a look at them and assess them there. So, uh, so first of all, uh, thanks everyone for showing up and uh, asking your questions. I appreciate that. And thanks, Augustina, for moderating. Thank you, Aaron, for the presentation. Very, very clarifying. All right. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. See, see you next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.